Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 5. There are some truths from God's Word that we don't always grasp fully, or maybe you haven't had a chance to learn yet. And what you don't know can create a gap in your life that is significant. We want to look at one of those truths today that's really important and is really a blessing. It's a wonderful truth that gives, uh, that yields a tremendous amount of peace in life. And it's found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always, in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The truth that I want to talk to you about today is this, the truth that our salvation in Christ is secure. We are secure in Christ. We don't have to live a Christian life full of doubts based on our performance, as in, am I going to be good enough as a Christian to actually make it to heaven? Am I going to be good enough so that I won't get unsaved or, or taken out of God's family? Our salvation is secure. The Apostle Paul said, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. I want you to understand today that our salvation is secure, and it's secure first of all, first and foremost, because it is God who saves us. It is God who saves us. Listen to this. From, this is from when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Philippi, the place to where this book was written. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. When Paul went to the city of Philippi, it was primarily a Roman city, and so there was no Jewish place of worship, which in that time was called the synagogue. There was only one temple, and that was at Jerusalem. But in every place where there were Jewish people, where there was ten or more, they would get together for a worship service, and then if they had enough, they would actually have a building that they called the, the gathering place. Literally, it's what the synagogue means. And so they would come there, and even after Christ had come and was di died and was buried and rose again and left the earth, and Christianity was started, people would still go to those synagogues to pray. And so when the Apostle Paul would go into a new town that he'd never been to before, when he was looking for people to preach the gospel to, he would go to the Jewish place of worship. And so he went into Philippi, and there was no such place, which means there was less than ten um, uh, worshiping Jews in that place. And so he went to the place where they would be, which was by the river, because they had to wash their hands and, and do some things in order to worship in the Jewish way. And so he went down to the river, and Lydia was there. And so Lydia is called a woman who worshiped God. She was a God-fearing woman in the Old Testament tradition. And when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel, look what happened. The Lord opened her heart. We have many perceptions of what happens when we come to faith in Christ. But the truth at the bottom of it all is right here. It is the Lord who opens our hearts. 
We don't save ourselves. We don't even believe by ourselves, if you will. It is God who opens the heart, who, who unblinds the eyes. He lets us see the truth. He lets us know the truth. Ephesians 2, these famous verses put it this way, by grace or by a gift, you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God saves us. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having now been justified or made righteous by his blood, we shall be saved. The future of us, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you understand that God says, when he saved us, no matter what your perception of your life was, no matter what your perception of the circumstances were, the truth is you were a sinner, estranged or alienated, separated from God. And so it is. it was God who reached down and opened your eyes and took a hold of the rope in your hands and pulled you toward himself. Now, without doubt, there came a point at which you had to decide to surrender you had to decide, I am, I am going to believe. God has, is convicting me. That's one of the works of the Holy Spirit. But it is God who saves us. And according to these verses, he saves us even when we didn't want it. And if that is the case, then only God could unsave you. And he won't. He won't. It is God who saves us, and that's why we're secure. It's also, it's, we are also secure because God is in the business of transforming us, not removing us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anybody is in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, God says you're in Christ. And one of the results of that is you are a new creation. You are created new Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When you accept Christ as your Savior, God changes your life and you begin to be like Christ day after day after day. You're not completely perfect at that moment, but the potential to become like Christ is there. You are a new creation. John chapter 3 says you are born again. You can't be unborn some people protest the truth of our security by saying or thinking that, that, we, that if we're secure in our salvation and if we cannot lose our salvation, surely what that will cause people to do is to walk in sin. Because they say, you know, I can live any way I want. I'm safe. I'm going to heaven. God's told me I'm going to make it there. So it doesn't matter how I live. Well, if you think that way today, I want to stay away from you. Because you have got some hard lessons coming. Because God not only loves you so much that he has saved you, but he is going to keep you walking with him. That's what these verses are about. 
Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to a son? My son, do not despise the chastening or disciplining of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with a son. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. How does this truth come to bear on our salvation? It comes this way. God loves you so much that he reached down and saved you even when you were headed in the other direction. And once you have come to faith in Christ and you are a new creation in Christ, he loves you so much that he is going to keep you walking in the straight and narrow. He loves you so much that as a father, he knows sin is not good for you, but righteousness is good for you. And so he is going to do what is necessary for you to walk in righteousness. And the example that's drawn here is from a parent and child. If uh, Right here around our church is an example. When church is over, parents are concerned that their kids not run in the street. These are extremely busy streets. I was shocked to find out how busy they are when I moved back to Ferndale. I thought it was going to be like Everson, where a car goes through once in a while just because it's required or something. And so we're very careful. We don't say, oh, child... You'll take care of yourself, you'll figure it out, and well, you know, if something happens, that was your choice. That's not the kind of father God is. God isn't up in heaven going, ooh, I hope you stay saved. He's the kind of father that says, you're about to step out of line, I'm going to have to do something about that. When my son was in junior high, he got enamored with the idea of painting on the graffiti rock at the high school. Now, this was a totally acceptable activity. It was a big rock. They built a whole new high school. They left one thing in place. It was this rock. And so, you know, it's just like the rock down on the freeway down south of Bellingham. Every, every so often, it would show up painted in a, in a new design. And he was talking about this one day, and I thought, yeah, whatever, whatever. We go to bed that night, and I heard a noise. And I thought, what in the world is that? Now, we lived in a place where when you hear a noise, you check it out. When I hear a noise now at our house, I go, whatever, go back to sleep. But not where we lived in Tukwila. And uh, I hear a noise. I get up and I look. And uh, one girl, another girl, mm, empty bed. God, what in the world? And it went, oh, the light went on. Oh, he's talking about painting that rock. He would not go paint that rock at 11 o'clock at night, would he? Yeah, he's in junior high. Yeah, he would. <laughs> so I got my clothes on and got in the car and headed for the junior high. And, and that guy was running because he was at the junior high before I could drive there. You know, I don't know what in the world. And I just pulled up and said, get in the car. Now, see, what he didn't know and what you don't know is, as a police chaplain, I responded to heinous crimes all over Tukwila in that area of town. Where we lived was part of it was on the marginal edge, but part of it was what you and I would call Ferndale-esque. Not a high crime area, but part of it was a huge high crime area. I mean, just a few months before he did this, we had, I attended to a murder of a, of a kid who was murdered because somebody wanted his clothes on, on New Year's Day. And so, I, I, you know, my son didn't understand. 
He put himself in the place of danger at 11 o'clock at night by himself without being worldly wise to be, be safe in his surroundings. And so as a father, did I say, well, we'll just see how that goes tomorrow morning. No! I went up there and I said, get in the car. And the next day I said, look, bud, you don't understand how dangerous that is. Yeah, and I said to him, look, you want to go paint the rock, I'll go with you, but you can't go do this by yourself at 11 o'clock at night. I loved him too much to let him be in the place of danger. And that's what this scripture is talking about. God loves you too much to let you live in sin. If you think you're a believer and you're living in sin and looking around going, uh, I guess it ain't that big of a deal. You know what that means? You are illegitimate. You know what that, what that scripture is saying is, look, at, you're either God's child and he's getting after you when you walk away, or you're a false believer. You think you've believed in Christ. You've said some words. You've had a thought or two. You, you, you believe a couple of things, but you've never become a true believer in Christ because if you were God's son, he would love you so much, he would make you walk in righteousness. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 First John chapter 5 also talk about the idea that if you're going to rebel against God as a believer, he may have to get so extreme as to take you home early to keep you from living in sin. We are secure because God transforms us and he will not give up on us. He will not let us go into sin and just walk our own way. He will not let that happen. Thirdly, we are secure because it is God who protects us. On my own, I would do foolish things like my son did. I have done foolish things uh, in terms of sin and righteousness, but it is God who is protecting me and God is protecting you. God will not allow us to be tempted above what we are able to bear. The word tempted is the same word that's often translated tested. James chapter 1, a trial, a, a difficulty that God allows. The reason we don't fall is because Christ is protecting us. Do you think that God would allow a situation that is so sinfully tempting that you can't help but but do this sin and sin so greatly that you would fall away from your salvation. Well, God says no. He is going to protect you and, and, and surround you so that you can always make the right choice. It doesn't mean you always will make the right choice, but ultimately God is going to protect you. The other part that goes with this protection is here, God doesn't kick us out of his family for our sin because it is Christ who advocates for us. The word advocate is very similar to the word lawyer, somebody who argues in your defense. And it comes from this verse right here. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. The goal is not to sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what does that amount to? What it amounts to is when Satan comes 
to accuse you and say, look at that guy. Look at Dave Lunsford. Look at that sin just he did right there. Look at that. And Jesus Christ stands up and says, wait a minute, my blood has covered that sin. That's how Jesus Christ advocates for us. If it wasn't for his advocacy, if it wasn't for the ongoing nature of forgiveness through his blood, I would not have a defense before God. But because of that, I can be righteous in him. Number four, our salvation is, sure, is secure because God completes us. Look at Philippians 1.6 again. I'm confident that he who begun, it was God who saved you, he who begun will complete the work until the day of Christ Jesus. We went to Grandview to work on our project over there. Um, for those of you that haven't been aware of all the details, we haven't talked about it a lot, but but uh, Mission Church over there and, and their bathroom, their two main bathrooms, be like our bathrooms here, were just falling apart. And their kitchen was equally falling apart. The electrical was bad. The plumbing was bad. The, everything was bad. And so uh, we volunteered, and, and some other folks have helped with funding, and we've been working on this project. And uh, so we started, and this is essentially, we'd call this the third time over, a bunch of us went to start it, and then uh, Ben Sutton went by himself to work on the electrical. Mike Hennessy went by himself to work on plumbing, and now a bunch of us went back this weekend. And the kitchen is almost done. Um, ben Sutton will have to go back before it's completed. There's still some electrical to do there. And then um, after that, um, Chuck is going to go, right, Chuck? With uh, Jerry, and we're, we're recalling Jerry Martin, Jerry and Pen and... Uh, Jerry and Mary are joining the church where they live now over in Dayton, but we're not letting him go until he helps with this project, which is sheetrocking in the bathrooms upstairs. We have flooring and installing and all that stuff. We're going to keep at it till it's completed. Because we've taken on a responsibility, and we're going to make sure it happens. Okay, And that's a challenge. Uh, we almost didn't make it home. You know, the pass was closed. And... Uh, we came right at the time when they closed it, and Mike Hennessy, my smart guy with the GPS, said, hey, we could go around this way, and the freeway is closed, but Highway 10 is open, and uh, I know how the anti-skid device works on my car now. <laughs> All the way from Ellensburg to Cleolum in a driving snowstorm by myself, because they're way ahead of me now, and I'm lucky to be here today. Well, you see, I'm not lucky because God is at work. He made a commitment to us. And the commitment is, I'm going to save you. God didn't say, well, I'm going to start something, kind of like evolution. I'm going, to, I'm going to toss it out there and let's see how it goes for you. How do you do with it? No. He said, I'm going to start something and I'm going to work on it with you, and I'm going to keep working on it, and I'm going to keep my arms around you until it is completed. And it says it's completed until the day of Christ Jesus. That's talking about the rapture. Romans 8 puts it this way. Whom he foreknew, he, he looked ahead of time before we, before we were born, he knew us. He, he said, I'm going to save those people. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
so that he, Christ, might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he called, and whom he called, he justified, and whom he justified, these he glorified. It's talking about the process of salvation. God said, I'm going to save some people. And then he did save us. And then he kept us saved all the way to being glorified. You know what a glorified version of you is? That's when you get up in the morning and really primp up nice and you're glorified. Like me today. <laughs> That's what we think of in terms of glorified. Glorified means to be brought to, into the, the condition of perfection. Okay, uh, The scripture speaks of Christ in his glorified body. His body while he was on the earth was human like yours and mine. Now, he was without sin, but humanly, he was just like you and I. But after he died, was buried, and rose again, he had a glorified body. And the scripture says, he walked into the room while the doors were closed. So a glorified body is different than a normal human body. And of course, the primary difference is that it is sinless. God is going to complete our salvation all the way till we're glorified. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. God doesn't say, well, I'm going to save you, and we'll see how it goes, and if you hang in there, I'll see you in a few years. No, he says, I will, I will raise you up. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Our salvation will not be complete until that day. If the Lord were to come and rapture us tomorrow, what would happen is all of those who have died in Christ, Elsie Foreigner, George Fujimoto, all of our brothers and sisters, and all of the folks from other churches who have truly believed in Christ, the Bible says their body is going to come out of the grave, the dead are going to be caught up first and reunited with their soul. Then we who are alive and remain. Now the whole thing, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is only going to take a twinkling of an eye, so it's not going to be a long process, and we're going to be tapping our foot going, come on. No, but the dead in Christ go first, then we who are alive and remain. When you die now, your soul goes directly to heaven, your body goes to the ground, which means your salvation isn't completed. You're secure in heaven, but the whole process God envisions includes your body and soul. And so it's not completed until the day of Christ Jesus when he comes and takes all the believers off the earth and our bodies are reunited with our soul. And 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. I tell you a mystery, something unrevealed in the Old Testament. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That is what is in our future if the Lord comes in our time, in our, in the, in our lifetimes. 
And Jesus put it this way in John, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall hopefully make it. What's it say? Never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Ultimately, you have to figure out if you are powerful enough to remove yourself from God's hands. And God says, no, you're not. God has made a promise. My sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. We just had an election. And a lot of promises were made. Are you going to the bank, making an investment based on the promises of the politicians? No. I think some of them mean very well. I don't mean to castigate them all or, or indict them all. When a politician makes a promise, he has a, a good intention. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's got a good intention. He may carry it out. He may not. He may change his mind. Some other people may change his mind. Who knows? He has a good intention, but whether or not it will be completed remains to be seen. But God Almighty says, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to bring you to heaven, and that's that for that. And we need to understand it that way. Our salvation is secure and part of this security comes in this same passage in, in this way. Our salvation is seen. In other words, if you are a true believer in Christ, that should show in your life. Salvation must be seen, but it cannot be earned. Here's where we get into a little bit of trouble. We need to be thinking real carefully. Sometimes, as I might speak what I'm about to speak here, some people will get the impression I've got to pedal really hard and hope to make it to heaven. That is not at all what I'm about to say. Just the opposite. God says our salvation cannot be earned, but it should be seen. It must be seen. Look at verse 3 of Philippians 1. This passage is somewhat ordered backwards, you might say, in a logical way. He says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And then the first three verses tell us why he was confident. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, with joy, making requests with joy. Why? For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. How did the salvation of the Philippian people show? It showed here, in particular, in their participation in the gospel ministry. The word fellowship means to, to be a partner, to participate together. Now, this wasn't a, just a surface look. It wasn't like the Apostle Paul said, Oh, you took an offering, I know you're saved. No, he said, We have been participating together Listen to this. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he was challenging them to give based on what the Philippians had done. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That's the area where Philippi was. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance or the generosity of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. 
You see, their offering was a sacrifice. He said they were in a great trial of affliction. And while some preachers might exaggerate in the pulpit, the Apostle Paul would not be one of them, especially in Holy Scripture. And so when he says they were having a great trial, that means they were really going through it. And in the midst of this heavy trial, instead of giving up and saying, why God, and complaining and crying and running away, instead of that, they said, you know, there's some folks over there that need some help. What can we do to help them? That only comes from relationship with Christ. Their ministry was conducted under affliction. That only happens to true believers. And so they demonstrated their salvation. Their salvation was seen by their ministry for Christ. What God says about the visibility of our salvation is well summarized here in 1 John. This is the message that we've heard from him and we declare it to you. God is light or completely sinless and righteous. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship or connection, partnership with him, and yet we're walking, we're living our lives in darkness, we are lying and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The first thing you need to understand is this. If you claim to be a Christian, if you have... If you are saying, I have believed in Christ, the tone, the style of your life should be righteous. If the tone of your life is unrighteous, you need to check yourself. Now, I don't say that out of any desire to be the judge or the jury. I say that out of concern for you. Because Jesus Christ himself said someday... At the judgment seat where all of the unbelievers will appear, there will be people going, Lord, Lord, didn't you see what I did for you down there? And he will say, away with you, I never knew you. That's, that's really some serious kind of delusion. To get all the way to the judgment seat going, what in the world happened? And I don't want to be part of that. And so I want to challenge you today to look at these verses and say, is the tone of my life righteous? Is the tone of my life love for the Lord? If I was in a great trial of difficulty, would I reach out to help some other believers? Now, he balances this by saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. See, he's not arguing for some foolishness like sinless perfection. There are some churches out there who teach you can get to a point in your spiritual life where you never sin again. Well, I'd like to meet those people. Because I don't see it in the Scripture and I don't see it in people's lives. He says, look, I'm, I'm not talking about some kind of sinless perfection. God knows that you're still a work in progress. So we're talking about the tone of your life, your lifestyle. Is it walking toward Christ? Is it walking in Christ? Yes, you step off that path, but you confess your sin, you get back on. Yes, there are challenges, but I keep walking with the Lord. Now, if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. So if you have sin, then you should confess your sin, 
And if you do so, he is faithful and just to forgive and and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, what this passage seems to say is there are two extremes to which you can go. One extreme is a person who says, oh yes, I'm a believer in Christ, but their life is clearly sinful. The other extreme is a person who says, oh yes, I'm a believer in Christ, I never sin." And he says, you're both out to lunch. He says, the truth is, your lifestyle should be righteous, but there will be times when you sin and you make it right with God. The question you need to ask today is, does my concept of salvation and the Christian life match God's concept? Our salvation is known. It it, it is known. It's not a mystery. It's not something we can't figure out. It's a known thing. We've seen from the Scripture that God holds His children securely, but you may be here today, or you may have a friend who still wonders, am I truly saved? How can we have real confidence? Well, 2 Corinthians says, examine yourself. It is a good thing to take an internal evaluation. Examine yourself, whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? It is a valid thing to stop and take stock of where you're at. And the way you would take stock is, first of all, to say, do I have a right belief? Do I believe that it is Jesus Christ alone who saves? That his death on the cross was enough to pay the payment for sin and his resurrection from the dead proved his message and gave him power to give me a new life? Do I believe in Jesus, the Son of God, my Savior, who alone has saved me? Is that my belief? If you have something else hooked up with it, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but... Yeah, I believe in Jesus and... Well, I believe in part of what the truth is. No, it's got to be exactly what God says. You have to come to a point in life where you realize you are a sinner, that Christ is the Savior. If you have that right belief, if you genuinely in your heart, Romans 10 says, if you've believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth, then you are a believer in Christ. Now, some will say, yes, pastor, you know, I really think I've done that, but I'm still not at peace with God. And that's the second question then you need to ask yourself. You need to honestly look and say then, well, if I have a right belief, do I have a right life? The key to our assurance of salvation, not the key to our security. The key to our security is God himself. The key to our assurance, though, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. God says that when you believed in Christ, the Holy Spirit came in, and it is a spirit of adoption. It's not a spirit of condemnation. It's a spirit that makes us go, Daddy. We we know the connection because the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to give us an internal recognition that we know God. Now, the Holy Spirit's ministry has three facets. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's right, wrong, and the consequences. The Holy Spirit 
impresses on you, if you're an unbeliever and you're here today saying, boy, this really makes sense to me, that is the Holy Spirit going, this is right. If you're here today saying, boy, I am guilty of something, that is the Holy Spirit going, that is wrong. And of course, judgment is the consequences. When you, as a believer in Christ, live righteously, Holy Spirit produces fruit in your character and through your actions gives you the joy of service and gives you the peace of knowing you're in Christ. When you sin as a believer, the Holy Spirit stops producing fruit and he stops producing ministry and he turns his attention to conviction of wrong. And that's why we feel guilty. And so the Holy Spirit turns his attention to producing guilt and what should happen is an immediate understanding of, hey, that was wrong. What I just did, what I just said, where I'm thinking about going, that's wrong. And I know that's wrong. And I confess, First John 1, 9, I confess. And as soon as we do that, the Holy Spirit goes, good job. Isn't it good to know God and to walk with him? And we go, yeah, it's good to know God and to walk with him. And, and, and there we go, walking along in peace. But if the Holy Spirit goes, that's wrong, and we say, I know, and I'm going to walk in it anyway, then he keeps producing guilt, and God comes along with circumstances to smack us up alongside the head until we finally go, yes, I'm sorry, that's wrong. I should not have done that. I confess, and I will live right. Now, if you let this condition of conviction of sin because you're living in sin, if you let that go on over a period of time, you will not feel saved. There's no doubt about that. And so the, the test you need to apply to yourself is, do I have a right life? Am I feeling like I am not saved because I'm walking in sin? Are my prayers not being answered because I'm walking in sin? We need to have a little sit down with God and examine ourselves and say, God, where am I at? Where am I at? Is my life right? And then thirdly, there's a third aspect of knowing your salvation, and that is, do you have a right thought? And I'm coming to the issue of belief now. We have just shown from the scripture today that God is not in the business of kicking you out of his family but maybe you have never understood that truth before. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong thinking. And in this case, wrong thinking will rob you of your peace as you live in fear of losing your eternal salvation. I do not think that's what God intended when Jesus said these words, take my yoke, take my, take my harness, get into the harness with me which is a thing of work, and yet learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He said, look, get into the harness. Yes, there is restriction, but what I'm telling you is it will be the best place you can possibly be in your life. Jesus loves you and is working toward your safety and security not working toward finding a reason for kicking you out of his family. He who began a good work will complete it. You know, I went to, uh, 
Eileen Engler's mom's memorial service this week up at Second Christian Reform. Never been to a Christian Reform church. I've never been to one at all, as a matter of fact, much less for a funeral. And so I thought, well, it'd be interesting to see what the preacher preaches and what he does and so on and so forth. You know, a little, little professional curiosity there. And he did a good job, preached a good sermon. And he, and he preached out of Psalm 23, just a couple of the verses. And he said something I thought, boy, that is so poignant. That's going to be in one of my sermons. He said, and, and just so you know, and I'm not telling tales out of school here, Eileen's mom loved the Lord, but maybe wasn't the easiest person to get along with all the time. And everybody who knew her knew that. No secret. It was referred to at the service as well, okay? And so the pastor said, you know, he, 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 was, he was kind of getting a little flowery. I was kind of worried about him. You know, people die and they become saints, you know. And he says, he said, how do we know this is secure? How do we know it's real that she's in heaven? And he said, she wasn't that great of a sheep, but she had a great shepherd. That's the truth of God's word today. None of us are that great a sheep. None of us deserve heaven None of us as Christians deserve the security that God offers to us. And that's what's so great about it. God saves us in spite of ourselves. I hope you're living in that peace today. Eileen's mom knew that peace before she left. I hope you're living in that peace I talked to, to somebody in a time of difficulty in their life, and, and, and even it wasn't life-threatening, but it could have been. It was kind of iffy, and they just said, I don't know how people do this who don't know the Lord. And I would add to it, I don't know how people do it who are constantly worried about whether they're going to make it or not. Folks, God intends for you to live in peace. And I hope that that is your... I hope that's your privilege today. If it's not, it would be my joy to help you with that after church.